too. Our lanterns went out. We should be in pitchy darkness. Now we are in the Mammoth Cave of Kentucky. This vast cavern, which stretches so many miles beneath the surface of the earth, has never been fully explored, but we are going over as much of it as our guide is accustomed to show to visitors. And if our legs are not tired before we get back I shall be very much surprised, for the trip will take us all day. The floor on which we are now standing is smooth and level, and runs back into the interior of the cave fully a thousand yards. This place they call the Audubon Gallery, after our famous naturalist who made birds the study of his life. His works are published in enormous volumes, costing about $150 apiece. Perhaps your father will get you one. We pass quickly through this gallery, where there is not much to see. Although, to be sure, they used to manufacture saltpetre here. Think of that, a manufactory in the bowels of the earth. Then we enter a large, roundish room called the Rotunda, and from this there are a great many passages, leading off in various directions. One of these, which is called the Grand Vestibule, will take us to the church. Yes, we had a church here, and, what is more, there has been preaching in it, although I have never heard that it had any regular members. This room has a vast arch roof and a great many stalactites hang from the walls and roof in such a way as to give one an idea of Gothic architecture. Therefore this has been called the Gothic Church. You can see a great deal which looks like old-fashioned church ornaments and furniture, and, as the light of the lanterns flashes about on the walls and ceiling, you can imagine a great deal more. After this we come to the Gothic Avenue, which would be a very interesting place to us if we but had a little more time, but we hurry through it. For the next room we are to visit is called the Haunted Chamber. Every one of us must be very anxious to see anything of that kind, when we get into it. However, we are very much disappointed. It is not half so gloomy and dark as the rest of the cave, for here we are pretty sure to find people, and lights, and signs of life. Here you may sometimes buy gingerbread and bottled beer, from women who have stands here for that purpose. It is expected that when visitors get this far they will be hungry. Sometimes, too, there are persons who live down here, and spend most of their time in this chamber. These are invalid people with weak lungs, who think that the air of the cave is good for them. I do not know whether they are right or not, but I am sure that they take very gloomy medicine. The only reason for calling this room the haunted chamber island that the first explorers of the cave found mummies here, who these were when they were alive, no man can say, if they were Indians. They were very different Indians from those who have lived in this country since its discovery. They do not make mummies, but all over our land we find evidences that some race now extinct lived here before the present North American Indian. Whether the ghosts of any of these mummies walk about in this room, I cannot say, but as no one ever saw any, or heard any, or knew anybody who had seen or heard any, I think it is doubtful. When we leave this room we go down some ladders and over a bridge. And then we enter what is called the labyrinth, where the passage turns and twists on itself in a very abrupt manner, and where the roof is so low that all of us, except those who are very short indeed, must stoop very low. When we get through this passage, which some folks call the path of humiliation, for everybody has to bow down, you know we come to a spot where the guide says he is going to show us something through a window. The window is nothing but a hole broken in a rocky wall, but as we look through it, and hold the lanterns so that we can see as much as possible. We perceive that we are gazing down into a deep and enormous well. They call it the bottomless pit. If we drop pits of burning paper into this well we can see them fall down, down, 
and down, until they go out, but can never see them stop, as if they had reached the bottom, the hole through which we are looking is cut through one side of this well, so that there is a great deal of it above us as well as below, but although we hold our lanterns up, hoping to see the top, we can see nothing but pitchy darkness up there, the roof of this pit is too high for the light to strike upon it, here is a picture of some persons dropping lights down into this pit, hoping to be able to see the bottom, we must climb up and down some more ladders now, and then we will reach the mammoth dome, this is a vast room big enough for a gymnasium for giants and the roof is so high that no ordinary light will show it, it is nearly 400 feet from the floor, the next room we visit is one of the most beautiful places in the whole cave, it is called the starry chamber, the roof and walls and floor are covered with little bright bits of stone, which shine and glitter, when a light is brought into the room, like real stars in the sky, if the guide is used to his business, he can here produce most beautiful effects, by concealing his lantern behind a rock or pillar, and then gradually bringing it out, throwing more and more light upon the roof, he can create a most lovely starlight scene, at first all will be dark, and then a few stars will twinkle out, and then there will be more of them, and each one will be brighter, and at last you will think you are looking up into a dark sky full of glorious shining stars, and if you look at the walls you will see thousands of stars that seem as if they were dropping from the sky, and if you cast your eyes upon the ground, you will see it covered with other thousands of stars that seem to have already fallen, this is a lovely place, but we cannot stay here any longer, we want to reach the underground stream of which we had heard so much the river sticks, this is a regular river, running through a great part of the mammoth cave, you may float on it in a boat, and, if you choose, you may fish in it, although you would not be likely to catch anything, but if you did, the fish would have no eyes, all the fish in this river are blind, you can easily perceive that eyes would be of no use in a place where it is always as dark as pitch, except when travelers come along with their lanterns, there is a rough boat here, and we will get into it and have a row over this dark and gloomy river, Whenever our guide shouts we hear the wildest kind of echoes, and everything seems solemn and unearthly. At one time our boat stops for a moment, and the guide goes on shore, and directly we hear the most awful crash imaginable. It sounds as if a dozen gong factories had blown up at once, and we nearly jump out of the boat, but we soon see that it was nothing but the guide striking on a piece of sheet iron or tin. The echoes, one after another from this noise had produced the horrible crashing sounds we had heard, after sailing along for about half an hour we land, and soon reach an avenue which has its walls ornamented with beautiful flowers all formed on the rocky walls by the hand of nature, now we visit the ballroom, which is large and handsome, with its walls as white as snow, leaving this, we take a difficult and exciting journey to the rocky mountains, we go down steep paths, which are narrow, and up steep ones, which are wide, we jump over wide cracks and step over great stones, and we are getting very tired of scrambling about in the bowels of the earth, but the guide tells us that if we will but cross the mountains, which we find to be nothing more than great rocks, which have fallen from the roof above, but which, however, are not very easy to get over we shall rest in the fairy grotto, so on we push, and reach the delightful abode of the fairies of the mammoth cave, that island if there were any fairies in this cave, they would live here and a splendid place they would have, great colonnades and magnificent arches, all ornamented with beautiful stalactites of various forms, and glittering like cut glass in the light of our lanterns, and thousands of different ornaments of sparkling stone, 
many of them appearing as if they were cut by the hand of skillful artists. Adorn this beautiful grotto. At one end there is a group of stalactites, which looks to us exactly like a graceful palm tree cut out of alabaster. All over the vast hall we can hear the pattering and tinkling of the water, which has been dripping, drop by drop, for centuries, and making, as it carried with it little particles of earth and rock, all these beautiful forms which we see. We have now walked nearly five miles into the great cave, and there is much which we have not seen, but we must go back to the upper earth. We will have a tiresome trip of it, but it is seldom that we can get anything good without taking a little trouble for it, and to have seen this greatest of all natural caverns is worth far more labor and fatigue than we have expended on its exploration. There is nothing like it in the known world. The lion. I do not desire to be wanting in respect to the lion, because I asserted that it was my opinion that he should resign the throne of the king of beasts to the elephant. I do not wish to deprive him of any part of his just reputation. The lion with the exception of any animal but the elephant, the rhinoceros, the hippopotamus, and such big fellows, is the strongest of beasts, compared to tigers and panthers, he is somewhat generous, and compared to most of the flesh-eating animals, he is quite intelligent, lions have been taught to perform certain feats when in a state of captivity, but, as all of us know who have seen the performing animals in a menagerie, he is by no means the equal of a dog or an elephant, The lion appears to the greatest advantage in the midst of his family. When he and his wife are taking their walks abroad they will often fly before a man, especially if he is a white man, but at home, surrounded by their little ones, the case is different. Those cubs, in the picture of the lion's home, are nice little fellows, and you might play with them without fear of more than a few scratches, but where is the brave man who would dare to go down among those rocks, armed with guns, pistols, or whatever he pleased, and take one of them, I do not think he lives in your town, we never see a lion looking very brave or noble in a cage, most of those that I have seen appeared to me to be excessively lazy, they had not half the spirit of the tigers and wolves, but, out in his native country, he presents a much more imposing spectacle, especially if one can get a full view of him when he is a little excited, here is a picture of such a lion as you will not see in a cage, considering his size, The strength of the lion is astonishing. He will kill an ox with one blow of his great paw. If he strikes it on the back, and then seizing it in his great jaws, he will carry it off almost as easily as you could carry a baby. And when he has carried his prey to the spot where he chooses to have his dinner, he shows that no beast can surpass him in the meat-eating line. When he has satisfied his hunger on an ox, there is not much left for those who come to the second table, and there are often other lions younger and weaker than the one who has provided the dinner, who must wait until their master or father is done before they have a chance to take a bite. But, as you may see by this picture, they do not wait very patiently. They roar and growl and grumble until their turn comes. Lions have some very peculiar characteristics. When they have made a bound upon their prey and have missed it, they seldom chase the frightened animal. They are accustomed to make one spring on a deer or an ox, and to settle the matter there and then. So. After a failure to do this, they go to the place from which they have made the spring and practice the jump over and over until they feel that they can make it the next time they have a chance. This is by no means a bad idea for a lion or a man either. Another of their peculiarities is their fear of traps and snares. Very often they will not spring upon an ox or a horse, simply because it is tied to a tree. They think there is some trick when they see the animal is fastened by a rope, and when they come upon a man who is asleep. 
they will very often let him lie undisturbed. They are not accustomed to seeing men lying about in their haunts, and they don't know what to make of it. Sometimes they take it in their heads to lie down there themselves. Then it becomes disagreeable for the man when he awakes. A story of this kind is told of an African who had been hunting, and who, being tired, had lain down to sleep. When he awoke there lay a great lion at a short distance from him. For a minute or two the man remained motionless with fright, and then he put forth his hand to take his gun, which was on the ground a few feet from him. But when the lion saw him move he raised his head and roared. The man was quiet in a second. After a while it began to be terribly hot, and the rocks on which the poor man was lying became so heated by the sun that they burned his feet. But whenever he moved the old lion raised his head and growled. The African lay there for a very long time, and the lion kept watch over him. I expect that lion had had a good meal just before he saw this man, and he was simply saving him up until he got hungry again. But, fortunately, after the hunter had suffered awfully from the heat of the burning Sunday and had also lain there all night, with this dreadful beast keeping watch over him, the lion became thirsty before he got hungry, and when he went off to a spring to get a drink the African crawled away. If that lion had been a tiger, I think he would have killed the man, whether he wished to eat him or not. So there is something for the lion's reputation. Bob's hiding place. Bob was not a very big boy, but he was a lively little fellow and full of fun. You can see him there in the picture, riding on his brother Jim's back. One evening there happened to be a great many boys and girls at Bob's father's house. The grown-up folks were having a family party. And as they were going to stay all night you see this was in the country some of them brought their children with them. It was not long after supper that a game of blind man's buff was proposed, and, as it would not do to have such an uproar in the sitting room as the game would produce, the children were all packed off to the kitchen. There they had a glorious time. Jim is the first one blindfolded, and, as he gropes after the others, they go stumbling up against tables, and rattling down tin pans and upsetting each other in every direction. Old Grandfather, who has been smoking his pipe by the kitchen fire, takes as much pleasure in the game as the young folks, and when they tumble over his legs, or come banging up against his chair, he only laughs, and warns them not to hurt themselves. I could not tell you how often Grandfather was caught, and how they all laughed at the blind man when he found out who he had seized, but after a while the children became tired of playing blind man's buff and a game of hide-and-seek was proposed, everybody was in favor of that, especially little Bob, it appears that Bob had not a very good time in the other game, everybody seemed to run up against him and push him about, and whenever he was caught the blind man said, Bob, immediately, you see there was no mistaking Bob, he was so little, but in hide-and-seek he would have a better chance, he had always liked that game ever since he had known how to play anything, he was a good little fellow for hiding, and he knew it, when the game had begun, and all the children except the biggest girl, who was standing in a corner, with her hands before her face, counting as fast as she could, and hoping that she would come to a 100 before everybody had hidden themselves had scampered off to various hiding places, Bob still stood in the middle of the kitchen floor, wondering where in the world he should go to, all of a sudden the girl in the corner had already reached 60 before he thought he would go down in the cellar, there was no rule against that at least none that he knew of and so, slipping softly to the cellar door, over in the darkest corner of the kitchen, he opened it, and went softly down the steps, there was a little light on the steps, for Bob did not shut the door quite tightly after him, 
and if there had been none at all, he would have been quite as well pleased, he was not afraid of the dark, and all that now filled his mind was the thought of getting somewhere where no one could possibly find him, so he groped his way under the steps, and there he squatted down in the darkness, behind two barrels which stood in a corner, now, thought Bob, she won't find me easy, he wait there a good while, and the longer he wait the prouder he became, I'll bet mine's the hardest place of all, he said to himself, Bob heard a great deal of noise and shouting after the big girl came out from her corner and began finding the others, and he also heard a bang above his head, but he did not know that it was someone shutting the cellar door, after that all was quiet, Bob listened, but could not hear a step, he had not the slightest idea, of course, that they had stopped playing and were telling stories by the kitchen fire, the big girl had found them all so easily that hide and seek had been voted down, Bob had his own ideas in regard to the silence, I know, he whispered to himself, they're all found, and they're after me, and keeping quiet to hear me breathe, and, to prevent their finding his hiding place by the sound of his breathing, Bob held his breath until he was red in the face, he had heard often enough of that trick of keeping quiet and listening to breathing, you couldn't catch him that way, when he was at last obliged to take a breath, you might have supposed he would have swallowed half the air in the cellar, he thought he had never tasted anything so good as that long draught of fresh air, can't hold my breath all the time, Bob thought, if I could, maybe they'd never find me at all, which reflection was much nearer the truth than the little fellow imagined, I don't know how long Bob had been sitting under the steps it may have been five minutes, or it may have been a quarter of an hour, and he was beginning to feel a little cold when he heard the cellar door open, and someone put their foot upon the steps, there they are, he thought, and he cuddled himself up in the smallest space possible, someone was coming down, sure enough, but it was not the children, as Bob expected, it was his Aunt Alice and her cousin Tom Green, they had come down to get some cider and apples for the company, and had no thought of Bob, in fact, when Bob was missed it was supposed that he had got tired and had gone upstairs, where old Aunt Hannah was putting some of the smaller children to bed, so, of course, Alice and Tom Green did not try to find him, but Bob, who could not see them, thought it was certainly some of the children come down to look for him, in this picture of the scene in the cellar, little Bob is behind those two barrels in the right hand upper corner, but of course you can't see him, he knows how to hide too well for that, but when Tom and Alice spoke, Bob knew their voices and peeped out, oh, he thought, it's only Aunt Alice and me, they've come down for cider and things, I've got to hide safe now, or they'll tell when they go upstairs, I didn't know all them barrels had apples in, I thought some were potatoes, I wish they would just go upstairs again and leave that candle on the floor, I wonder if they will forget it, if they do, I'll just eat a whole half full of those big red apples, and some of the streaky ones in the other barrel too, and then I'll put my mouth to the spigot of that cider barrel and turn it, and drink and drink and drink and if there isn't enough left in that barrel, I'll go to another one and turn that, I never did have enough cider in all my life, I wish they'd hurry and go up, kissin, what's the good of kissin, a cellar ain't no place for that, I expect they won't remember to forget the candle if they don't look out, oh, shaw, just look at em, they're going up again, and taking the candle along, the mean things, poor little Bob, there he sat in his corner, all alone again in the darkness and silence, for Tom and Alice had shut the cellar door after them when they had gone upstairs, 
he sat quietly for a minute or two, and then he said to himself, I buy if I'd just as leave they'd find me as not, and to help them a little in their search he began to kick very gently against one of the barrels, poor Bob, if you were to kick with all your force and even upset the barrel they would not hear you, and what is more, they are not even thinking of you, for the apples are now being distributed, I wonder, said the little fellow to himself, if I could find that red apple barrel in the dark, but then I couldn't tell the red ones from the streaky ones, but either of them would do, I guess I won't try, though, for I might put my hand on a rat, they run about when it's dark, I hope they won't come in this corner, but there's nothing for and to eat in this corner but me, and they ain't lions, I wonder if they'll come down after more cider when that's all drunk up, if they do, I guess I'll come out and let Aunt Alice tell them all where I am, I don't like playing this game when it's too long, and so he sat and waited and listened, and his eyelids began to grow heavy and his head began to nod, and directly little Bob was fast asleep in the dark corner behind the barrels, by ten o'clock the children were all put to bed, and soon after the old folks went upstairs, leaving only Tom Green, Alice, and some of the young men and women down in the big sitting room, Bob's mother went up into the room where several of the children were sleeping, and after looking around, she said to the old colored nurse, Hannah, what have you done with Bob? I didn't put him to bed. Mom, I spect Miss Ellis has took him to her bed. She knowed how crowded the chillin' hall was, up here, but Alice has not gone to bed, said Bob's mother. Don't spect she has. Mom, said Hannah, but I reckon she put him in her bed till she come. I'll go and see, said Bob's mother. She went and she saw it, but she didn't see Bob, and he wasn't in the next room, or in any bed in the house, or under any bed, or anywhere at all, as far as she could see, and so, pretty soon, there was a nice hubbub in that house, Bob's mother and father, and his grandfather, and Hannah, and the young folks in the parlor, and nearly all the rest of the visitors, ransacked the house from top to bottom, then they looked out of doors, and some of them went around the yard, where they could see very plainly, as it was bright moonlight, but though they searched and called, there was no Bob, the house doors being open, Snag the dog came in and he joined in the search, you may be sure, although I do not know that he exactly understood what they were looking for, someone now opened the cellar door, but it seemed preposterous to look down in the cellar for the little fellow, but nothing was preposterous to Snag, the moment the cellar door was opened he shuffled down the steps as fast as he could go, he knew there was somebody down there, and when those who followed him with a candle reached the cellar floor, there was Snag, with his head between the barrels, wagging his tail as if he was trying to jerk it off, and whining with joy as he tried to stick his cold nose into the rosy face of little sleeping Bob, it was Tom Green who carried Bob upstairs, and very soon indeed, all the folks were gathered in the kitchen, and Bob sleepily told his story, but Tom and I were down in the cellar, said his Aunt Alice, and we didn't see you, I guess you didn't, said Bob, rubbing his eyes, I was a hitting and you was a kissin, what a shout of laughter arose in the kitchen at this speech, everybody laughed so much that Bob got wide awake and wanted some apples and cake, the little fellow certainly made a sensation that night, but it was afterwards noticed that he ceased to care much for the game of hide and seek, he played it too well, you see, the continental soldier, did you ever see a continental soldier, I doubt it, some twenty years ago there used to be a few of them scattered here and there over the country, but they must be nearly all gone now. About a year ago there were but two of them left, 
those whom some of us can remember were rather mournful old gentlemen, they shuffled about their dwelling places, they smoked their pipes, and they were nearly always ready to talk about the glorious old days of the revolution, it was well they had those days to fall back upon, for they had but little share in the glories of the present, when they looked abroad upon the country that their arms, and blood perhaps, had helped give to that vigorous young America which now swells with prosperity from Alaska to Florida, they could see very little of it which they could call their own, it was difficult to look upon those feeble old men and imagine that they were once full of vigor and fire, that they held their old flintlocks with arms of iron when the British cavalry rushed upon their bayonets, that their keen eyes flashed a deadly aim along their rusty, rifle barrels, that, with their good swords quivering in their sinewy hands, they urged their horses boldly over the battlefield, shouting brave words to their advancing men, and that they laughed at heat and cold, patiently endured hunger and privation, strode along bravely on the longest marshes, and, at last, stood proudly by when Cornwallis gave up his sword, those old gentlemen did not look like anything of that sort, their old arms could hardly manage their old canes, their old legs could just about carry them on a march around the garden, and they were very particular indeed about heat and cold, but history and art will better keep alive the memory of their good deeds, and call more vigorously upon the gratitude of their countrymen, than those old continentalers could themselves have done it, had they lived on for years and years, and told generation after generation how once they galloped proudly along the ranks, or, in humbler station, beat with vigorous arm the stirring drum roll that called their comrades to the battlefield, it is not well to despise anybody or anything until you know what they can do, I have known some very stupid looking people who could do a sum in the rule of three in a minute, and who could add up a column of six figures abreast while I was just making a beginning at the right hand bottom corner, but stupid looking beings are often good at other things besides arithmetic, I have seen doctors, with very dull faces, who knew all about castor oil and mustard plasters, and above you see a picture of a donkey who understood music, this animal had a very fine ear for music, you can see how much ear he had, and I have no doubt that he enjoyed the sweet sounds from one end to the other of those beautiful long flaps, well, he very often had an opportunity of enjoying himself, for the lady of the house was a fine musician, and she used to sing and play upon the piano nearly every day, and as soon as he heard the sweet sounds which thrilled his soul, the donkey would come to the parlor window and listen, one day the lady played and sang something which was particularly sweet and touching, I never heard the name of the song whether it was, I'm sitting on the stile, Mary, or, a watcher, pale and weary, but if it was the latter, I am not surprised that it should have overcome even a jackass, at any rate, the music so moved the soul of Mr. Donkey that he could no longer restrain himself, but entering the open door he stepped into the parlor, approached the lady, and with a voice faltering from the excess of his emotion, he joined in the chorus, the lady jumped backwards and gave a dreadful scream, and the donkey, thinking that the music went up very high in that part, commenced to bray at such a pitch that you could have heard him if you had been up in a balloon, that was a lively concert, but it was soon ended by the lady rushing from the room and sending her man John to drive out the musical jackass with a big stick, fortunately, all donkeys have not this taste for music, the nearest that the majority of jackasses come to being votaries of music is when their skins are used for covering cases for musical instruments, and if they have any ambition in the cause of harmony, that is better than nothing, the sensitive plant, there was never a better name for a plant than this, for the delicate leaves which grow on this slender stalk are almost as sensitive to the touch as if they were alive, 
If you place your hand on a growing plant, you will soon see all the leaves on the stem that you have touched fold themselves up as tightly as if they had been packed up carefully to be sent away by mail or express. In some of the common kinds of this plant, which grow about in our fields, it takes some time for the leaves to fold after they have been touched or handled, but if you watch them long enough five or ten minutes you will see that they never fail to close. They are not so sensitive as their cultivated kindred, but they still have the family disposition. Now this is certainly a wonderful property for a plant to possess, but it is not half so strange as another trait of these same pretty green leaves. They will shut up when it is dark, and open when it is light. It may be said that many other plants will do this, but that is a mistake. Many flowers and leaves close at night and open in the daytime, but very few indeed exhibit the peculiar action of the sensitive plant in this respect. That plant will open at night if you bring a bright light into the room where it is growing, and it will close its leaves if the room is made dark in the daytime. Other plants take note of times and seasons. The sensitive plant obeys no regular rules of this kind, but acts according to circumstances. When I was a boy, I often used to go to a greenhouse where there were a great many beautiful and rare plants, but I always thought that the sensitive plant was the most wonderful thing in the whole collection and I did not know then how susceptible it was to the influence of light. I was interested in it simply because it seemed to have a sort of vegetable reason, and understood that it should shut up its leaves whenever I touched it, but there were things around me in the vegetable cave, 